This is RSA Radio. I'm Matthew Taylor. You're listening to the final episode in our Work Shift series. In previous programmes, we've looked at how we should respond to changes in work, the threat of automation, the insecurity of the gig economy. A basic income could perhaps be part of that, but it's not a replacement for work itself. It's not just economic security that work provides, but a sense of purpose that comes from being useful, a source of pride in being recognised for your contribution. Contrary to the economists' view of work as disutility, we can find pleasure and satisfaction in the work process itself. So in this episode, I want to explore what makes good work. And I've got another reason for doing it as well. I'm leading a review of modern employment for the Prime Minister, and in a few weeks' time, ahead of that review, I'm going to launch a campaign for good work, saying now is the time for us to commit to an economy in which all work is good work. So it's very timely for me to be able to talk to three experts who've all got very interesting things to say about what we mean by good work and about the future of good work. First, the sociologist Richard Sennett, who's explored how work shapes our identities for many years, In his book, The Craftsman, he described the innate human desire to do work well for its own sake. We're also joined by Joanna Biggs, an editor at the London Review of Books, whose book All Day Long, A Portrait of Britain at Work, provided an intriguing and surprising snapshot of people's working lives today. And thirdly, Rohan Silva, an ex-government advisor and co-founder of the startup accelerator and co-working space Second Home, which is designed to promote creative and collaborative working. Thank you all for joining me. Richard, I'm going to ask you to kick off. What do you understand by the idea of good work? Well, I think it's no matter whether it's physical or mental, it's work where you exercise a skill and over time you get better at it. And good work isn't just being able to do something. It's got a history to it. It's got a a narrative. If you can build up a skill, you'll feel that the work you're doing is better and better, even though the work itself might be as simple a thing as sweeping a street, you know. You are able to build it up. And the problem with the modern economy is that we don't have a lot of jobs in which people are in work for a long enough time in the same kind of job where they are building up their skills. They do serial kinds of jobs. You may do them well for a moment, but there's no work narrative to them. It's why people hate working after a time for temp agencies or in places like sandwich shops and so on. There's no room to actually become better at something in a long time that's going to serve a purpose for you. So for me, it's, it's a question of where it fits in a narrative of your life of skills. Pride is an important part of this idea, people feeling a sense of of pride in their work. And do you think that it is possible for anyone to feel pride in their work as long as they're doing it for a while, they feel they're getting better at it? Or are some jobs, I mean, you've talked in The Craftsman about the importance of using your hands, for example, are some jobs just intrinsically more likely to be able to generate pride than others? Well, you know, it's a really interesting issue because there's a study done a fairly long time ago, about occupational prestige. And it turns out that jobs where you're pretty much in control of your own time, like being a plumber, have a higher prestige for people, you know, because you're controlling your own work, 
than much better paid jobs like being a middle manager. Nobody says, I want to be a bureaucrat. They may not say, I want to be a plumber, but there's an equivalent of that. It's the sort of romance of going back to the countryside for urban workers and, you know, starting an organic farm or something like that. So a lot of the issue about this is that the perception of good work is not just a perception of how much you're going to get paid. I think one of your colleagues at LSE, David Graeber, made a big splash when he used this phrase, bullshit jobs, to talk about the fact that people were doing jobs which nobody could really understand what the job was and what value it added. So you, you kind of concurring with that to a certain extent, that those jobs which seem just to be about intermediating in particular financial systems or legal systems rather than having a sense of a product or a purpose. Well, I wouldn't use the word bullshit about them. I think they're depressing in a long time. People, If people get caught in just being an intermediary. It has a kind of why am I doing this kind of thing. What I thought was unfortunate about that phrase is that it was applied often to manual labor work. Why would you be cleaning out bedpans in an old age home? Well, some people, that's not, you know, bullshit. That's something that gives them a real sense of being valuable to somebody else. I don't know whether he meant it, but it was taken in a way to mean that menial work, physical work, is basically something where you can't have any pride in what you're doing. So, Joanna, you interviewed a range of people in all day long. Does Richard's account of good work, does that chime with what you found? Yeah, I mean, I think I would probably widen a sense of what fulfilment is. I mean, we talked a lot about... I just think of the examples you use, street sweeping, but and then I was really pleased to hear you talk about bedpans at the end because I think care work, for example, or these traditional kind of women's work can be incredibly fulfilling as well, yes. even though they seem they seem like they just disappear. You know, obviously you keep making a bed and you wash it and you make it again and it just doesn't seem to produce a thing at the end, but it does bespeak something about caring and what the world means to you, what things matter. Is that also linked to a notion of a sense of service as well? You interviewed a whole lot of people who provided different kinds of services and and that sense of service of doing something for somebody else was an important part of it. I think so yeah because we talk about the service economy that's the biggest part of our economy um, and modern economies and what does that actually mean what sort of how does it wear us down what things that it doesn't bring and doesn't bring to us. People talk to me when they talked about their work often people said they loved it and when they were talking to someone who's writing a book about work they're not going to turn around and say how much they hate it always but there were lots of different mixed kind of motivations things they liked people would say money people would say this matters to me politically this matters to me you know as a belief system or I don't know things like that lots of different kind of motivations mixed up but I think that the main one is like feeling yes that you're connected to the world in a certain way either through history through community and money is a one expression of that actually this kind of account that Richard and Joanna have given which is of a sense of Stability, in a sense, doing the same thing, the satisfaction that comes from that kind of routine to a certain extent, pride in that thing that you do. Whereas you're dealing with kind of entrepreneurs. Everything has to be very, very fast. And they're bored within weeks if they're doing the same thing. Right. And that's compounded by so-called millennials under 35s who are overwhelmingly likely to move jobs. It's an average now of 18 months in a job in your 20s. And the, the rate of job switching for people in their 20s and early 30s is double the incidence that it was uh, 10 years ago. So there's a speeding up there, I See, think. Richard seems to think that's kind of largely a kind of pathological thing, whereas I'm not sure... Do you, do you think it's... Well, 
what I took actually from Richard's point, which I really agreed with actually, was a, a sense of agency being greatly fulfilling. Agency obviously can be manifested in various ways. One way might be by wanting to move jobs, right? I'm sick of that. I want to try something else. I want to learn something new and moving. Another way of manifesting that autonomy or, or trying to get more agency is by starting a business. And the popular survey that the Royal Society of the Arts commissioned a few years ago, which looked at the happiness, satisfaction of people who have started their own business or micro-entrepreneurs, was really interesting. I mean, some 85% of people who've started a, or run a small business or are self-employed, according to that survey, are more satisfied, happy, creative, feel more creative in, in their work yeah. than they did previously and so I think there's something about you know working for the man in that sort of particularly in the middle management type roles Richard that you were describing that I think is pretty awful when it comes to autonomy and agency and that causes a great deal of unhappiness. Interestingly I think in your in second home mm. people want to combine two things that they because they want the kind of independence of running their own thing and not having a boss but they actually want to be part of a community as well which is something Richard's written about that, that sense of of community in work. Very much so, yeah. Fascinating paradox, really, that uh, technology is theoretically obliterating distance. We can work with anyone, anywhere. Yeah. And there were a set of predictions actually made at the dawn of the internet age that this would mean that people would work in the countryside in the middle of nowhere and be collaborating online. Actually, there's a bit of that, but overwhelmingly the opposite has happened. Physical proximity matters more than ever for people. It matters more for innovation, but it certainly seems to be much more of a, a driver, a motivator of people's work choices. People want to be in dense urban centres. Uh, your friends are from work. You fall in love at work. Yeah. Why would you not want to be with people? I don't, yeah. yeah, of course. But, but, but if you I, think... would, you know, I think there's also a gender aspect. We did a study of women who had children who wanted to work and worked from home. Working at a distance meant in most companies that we studied that they were out of the water cooler effects. You know, they weren't there when all the informal stuff was going around. And I would say just like gender, there's I think there's always a class thing in this. If you're a working class boy or girl, and you're 18, your chances of being able to get financing to start up a business are not like Bill Gates when he was 18, mm. you know, who comes out of an upper-class family. His father could guarantee a loan and so on. One thing that I'd be interested to know from you is how much is the startup world really a world that's class-bound. To me, looking at it from the outside, it seems that it's a very unfair kind of aspiration for mm. all but a, f a certain kind of class of person. what you're describing is absolutely the case, even just a few years ago. The way you raise money is typically from friends, family, and fools, as they call mm. it. And if your friends and family are well off, you're more likely to be able to start. One of the things that we did in government was uh, introduce tax breaks for angel investment, very generous tax breaks. And that's actually unlocked a huge wave of capital for startups in this country. That has, I think, begun to really change that dynamic. You mentioned gender as well, which I really agree with. At Second Home, we really believe that if sort of different types of people are working alongside one another, that more exciting things will happen. 45% of our entrepreneurs and people at Second Home are, are female. We'd obviously want that to be 
50-50. And we can't quite get there. And so our next second home that we're creating in London Fields in East London is going to have a creche integrated in uh, the space. And in all kinds of other ways, we're trying to make it as family-friendly as possible. Because, you know, actually a, a lot of people who want to start businesses are working parents who want to strike a better balance, be more autonomous. And if their child is sick, they don't have to work that day and they can make it up some other time. And enabling that through the built environment, I hope, will make a very positive difference. I want, I want to come back to this question of the future of work a bit more slightly later on. But Joanna, I, one of the key concepts when we talk about work is the concept of alienation, kind of problematic relationship that people have with the product of their work. And it seemed to me in your book that notion of alienation was quite present. Who did you feel were the most alienated of the people that you engaged with? I think there was an element of it in all the interviews I did, but the one that really stuck with me, I guess, the guy was exactly my age. He worked in a call centre. Speaking to him about his work, we were sort of in a side room with his union rep in his lunch break, and he spoke a lot about his family, but a lot about his children, actually, like how his children wouldn't want him to go to work and things like that. But also just this sense he had of, like, he wanted to actually do quite a good job. He wanted to, like, know if someone... uh, The problems with people's broadband and stuff, so they ring up and say, you know, I've got this problem, and he could deal with it but he would never really know what happened. Like, he didn't follow it through. He didn't know if it finished properly. He didn't know if what he'd hit his targets, you know, like, got the call out in the right time, like, said what he wanted to do. He wouldn't know if those problems were solved. And, you know, he'd have friends, but call centres are terrible for the contracts, things like zero hours, worse than zero hours, just not putting people on decent contracts. And so that's some sort of camaraderie. You can get through that sort of day by being, like, going have a fag and, like, seeing what's going on in the canteen, all that sort of stuff you might do, make coffee for each other, that sort of thing that kept on disappearing like each time it was formed someone moved on and went and the people you can have a drink with you know, wouldn't be there and you have to make do have that effort all over again and so it's just this sense of like not providing the social kind of life that you would want to have not giving like that sense of work and even just that sense of completing a task you know like ticking something off on a list they couldn't even have that and it was sort of pulled down to the fact of like you know, trying to offset it, like, you know, making sure that his playlist was right on the way to work, that, you know, he'd walk to work because he didn't have money for a car always, or his wife would have the car, that sort of thing. It was like kind of mitigating the what work was doing to him. And, you know, we talked about changing jobs, but things like burnout were a big problem, things like just feeling that, what is the point of this? One of the things that I'm going to try to do is to say to people that we have focused in recent years on the quantity of work Mm. and Britain's got a reasonably good record at creating jobs, flexible jobs. Most people in flexible jobs say they want flexible jobs but it hasn't yet been legitimate to say that quality matters. My sense is we might have reached a moment where that changes, a moment when people say actually that which kind of sounds like wage slavery really is just not Mm. appropriate to modern norms. Do you think I'm being idealistic? I I totally agree. The, The writer William Gibson once said that the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And if you look at the tech industry, there's been a real emphasis there, because it's a competitive labour market, real emphasis there on good work, on purpose. You can make a difference. If you look at Facebook, for example, they limit the number of engineers they have globally in order to be able to say things to potential recruits like, we have a million Facebook users for every engineer. In other words, you can have a big impact if you come and work here. If you look at the way in which these companies, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, have incredibly lavish 
support in terms of childcare, in terms of massages and free food and cultural programming and things. It's all in order to create an environment that people want to work in because they're in a war for talent. Is that the simple truth, that if you have a skills that people need in a tight labour market, then you're going to get an offer like that? But if you're in the kind of northeast of England, where it's hard to get a job, and you don't have the skills that are in demand, then you've got to take what's offered. Well, I think, I think one of the challenges that you know, we're trying to grapple with at Second Home is that Google, for example, is spending a billion dollars on their new headquarters in London at King's Cross, because... They want to try and recruit and retain the best people. But if you are starting out by yourself or have a small business, you just as much want to try and persuade people to come and work for you. And it's one of the ways in which the the big guys have an unfair advantage over the the little people. And so we're internet trying to aggregate the needs of lots of small businesses for the types of good working environment that previously only the very big companies could afford. And there is absolutely, I think, as much need for that in Manchester and Glasgow and Sunderland and Newcastle as there is in London and San Francisco. Richard, you told me before we started that you're going to be updating your classic book, The Hidden Injuries of Class. Do you think that the changing nature of work is implicated in the kind of sense of anger and resentment which exists amongst so many working-class communities and which we've seen expressed in various ways politically. Yes, uh, but uh, you asked a question about alienation, and from the studies that we did, we found a different kind of context for it, which is that when you feel that you can do your boss's job better than your boss is doing, that is an incredibly potent source of alienation. And one of the things we tried to study is how common is that? And unfortunately, it's very common. And there's something wrong about the promotion ladder, not probably in the world you're in, which is a rather refined one. But in ordinary work, the reasons why people get promoted from seniority to just being somebody who can go along with, you know, not make waves and stuff like that, produces among large numbers of people, this feeling that incompetence wins. Uh, Joanne, on this issue of the boss, I'm interested in that. I mean, in the different jobs that you spoke to, how important was people's attitude to their boss in conditioning their sense of work? I actually, weirdly, as I look think about the book now, I was probably drawn to people that did their own had a bit of autonomy, and maybe I was interested in that generally, or yeah. in thinking about what work is good or bad or interesting. That's good work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You talk to sex workers, and for them, I mean, it would be kind of matter of life and death whether or not they're working and being exploited by somebody else. I guess. Yeah, but they often they work with other women. They work collectively. They find ways of working that's not like beholden to a boss in that way. I mean, lots of people talk about. I'm talking, thinking about the ballerina I spoke to because that's got a very hierarchical system, kind of the Royal Ballet, the way it goes from the bottom right up to the top and different roles that she wanted and whether she could get to the next level and what that meant for her as a woman, whether she could, how much she got paid and how much, whether she could have children or not. Like, actually, it's all implicated in lots of things. The thing about the Royal Ballet is you don't, the bosses there are pretty great, so it's not worry about that. But there's some sense of, like, being pushed against certain limits, I guess, in work is quite difficult. Good bosses are great and rare. I'm lucky that I have one, but lots of people do. <laughs> um. We've touched on this already, but I want, in the final part of our conversation, to think about the future. In other programmes, we've talked about kind of notions that 50% of jobs are going to disappear, and there's a kind of technological determinism around. Rowan, you're dealing with people who are creating the companies of the future. 
do you think they're creating companies where work will be good? Are they creating fulfillment centres where people have trackers attached to their ankle and have to ask permission to go to the toilet? Well, it's absolutely. We did a survey just recently asking people who work at Second Home how they feel about coming to work, and over ninety percent said that they look forward to coming to work each day, which I, you know I hope is a good sign. However, the challenge for them, and we have big companies who have teams at Second Home, as big corporations like Ernst and Young and and so on have teams there, as well as uh, startups. The pressure they all feel is the pressure to be creative and innovative. And the reason that pressure is coming is that, of course, jobs that don't involve creativity are much more readily automated. And that begs the question, where does creativity come from? Is it just manna from heaven? Or is it possible to create environments and communities and cultural programs and things that make it more likely that a creative collision happens, a creative insight and so on? But that is a real pressure that they're feeling. The hope with Second Home is that uh, we, at the very least, can make that process of trying to be creative or turning an idea into a product or a company less gruelling and hellish and frustrating. You were involved in making economic policy for a Conservative government. I guess I'm hoping to influence a Conservative government with my review. One of the things I've got to try to persuade people is that it's possible to have a successful economy without having lots of people doing awful jobs. Now, is that an argument that I can win, do you think? You absolutely can. There's a tough challenge for all of us who, who believe in, in the agenda you're describing, which is that there's another paradox in the world of technology, which is Morovetch's paradox, which is that work that takes humans a long time to learn to do, like accounting, is easier to be automated. It's not necessarily a skill that we have evolved over millions of years to be able to do. Whereas things that a five-year-old can do quite easily, like run around and pick things up and learn languages, are much harder. And a lot of the jobs that we therefore think as more lowly skilled are going to be more resistant to automation. So jobs in care homes, therapists and so on, which are incredibly important, but relatively in the main lowly paid. The view amongst many economists is those jobs will keep being created. Jobs at the top involving creativity will pull away. And in the middle, jobs will continue to disappear. And that's a real challenge. And I think that it's something that, you know, I know Theresa May's government cares deeply about because no one wants to see inequality widening. We want to make sure that as many people benefit as a result of technology change rather than lose out from it. So what, what, Richard, do you think are the principles that we need to apply? So you've got the kind of juggernaut of the global economy and finance. You've got the kind of runaway train of technology. We're going to have to have some pretty powerful humanistic principles if the outcome of this is not going to be pretty miserable for a lot of people. It's true. As you were saying, I mean, the bottom line of this is going to be less work. i tell you what my own view of what should happen is. We have to do something like combine ideas about basic income with job sharing. And that means that you're guaranteed a basic income and you maybe have a third or a half of a job that is not going to be as vulnerable to being automated as other jobs. That really takes a controlled economy of a sort we've never seen before. Save in places like the Netherlands and Norway, which are trying to figure out how to create jobs which give people a sense of being useful and being employed, even though the field of work available to them is shrinking constantly. 
is part of this, Joanna, about the fact that we need to re-imagine the notions of status that we attach to work. I read that hairdressers are amongst the happiest group of, of workers. But we have a kind of snobbery, don't we? We have a kind of view that old male industrial jobs are kind of proper jobs and new, more female service sector jobs aren't proper jobs. And as you said, care work continues to be seen as being low status. So it's part of the solution to this problem. We're going to have to revise our kind of status hierarchy about work. And that's quite exciting, I think, like what might happen with that. But we talk about work a lot, but work fits into a life, right? We want our lives to be great. William Morris said this, love and work. Like, How do we organise everything? And actually, we organise everything by maybe having a bit less work, having a bit more time to, like, with your family, with your loved ones, with organising politically, or whatever you want to do with your free time, knitting, learning Spanish, reading Marx, I don't know. But that sense of how, what do we see life in total? And what, do we, what other space do we give other things? And, you know, you don't want to be on your deathbed thinking oh, you know, I didn't finish that report on time. There's other things that you want to think about. Do you agree with that, Rowan, that it's, as well as shifting the status, we also have to blur the boundaries a bit more between work and non-work? Again, one of the things we're really trying to do with Second Home is sort of celebrate the fact that the old delineation between work and home, work and life, is breaking down for lots of people as people increasingly have their own business or are self-employed. That line is I never escape their phone. I mean, there's bad sides to this as well. There really are. I I would office. That your life is all... (laughs) I would say I'm I'm personally more optimistic about the fact that new jobs will continue to be created. They just don't look like the old ones. I think where the state needs to be much more interventionist and much more ambitious is when it comes to paying for training. The Anglo-Saxon settlement where you're a 50-year-old paralegal, you lose your job because of automation. We expect you in this country to borrow money, go into debt in order to reskill. I don't think that's fair in this age of disruptive innovation. You might be training for a job that itself could disappear in a few years as the waves of technology roll on. And also, the more we know about the well-being and happiness agenda, the more we know that the real cost of worklessness is much more than the pounds and pence of welfare. And so I think a, a new world in which a Conservative government or a Labour government is paying people, not only funding your training, but giving you a salary while you train, that to me feels like a really 21st century welfare economy in the digital age. So, Rowan, this is going to be final ask for you all. It'll be easier for you because you come like me from a policy background. But I'm going to ask all three of you, as I develop my Good Work manifesto, give me one policy that you think I should promote above all else if we're going to create a kind of good work economy. Richard, starting with you. Well, I don't think you should confuse good work with happiness. I think that what you've got to understand is that Job satisfaction is something that oftentimes involves struggle, it involves failure and recovering from failure, and so on. To create a regime in which people are sort of happy every day in their jobs is not to take work very seriously about its place in a person's life. Happiness is cheap, but meaning is difficult, and that's what people want from the work. They want to have a feeling that they're developing as people, that what they do serves a community or family, or you know. And I think you'd trivialize what you do if you left it at the level of simply of people feeling good every day about what they do. That's a trivial view of work. Joanna, what's your, what's your thing that I should be 
arguing for, thinking of the people that you talk to in particular? What was the thing that matters most to them? Is it just a higher wage, for example? Well, I spoke to so many different sorts of people and I think I couldn't speak for all of them, 32 different people. But I totally agree with what Richard said. And I also think, I love this idea of the universe basically and what it might do for changing the hierarchies of work. Of, I really, into the 1970s women who asked for wages for housework, that seems to me really this idea that like you value what Marx has called social reproduction. So it's like, you know, wiping bums, picking up kids from school and like showing them that Manet picture in the National Gallery, you know, all that sort of stuff. That matters. I think that moving that hierarchy and saying this stuff is work, this stuff matters, this is what we care about society, that seems to me exciting and a cool thing to do. And Rowan, you're used to questions like this. (laughs) Well, I think that uh, this question of how we can strike a better balance between autonomy and security particularly for self-employed people is you know the great policy question which luckily you've got your teeth well into and i think in particular things like parental leave statutory sick pay hard fought workers rights over many many decades there are ways i know you're going to find them of (laughs) ensuring that self-employed people can accrue those kinds of benefits over time while still retaining the kind of autonomy and flexibility that overwhelmingly they actually prefer to traditional ways of working Uh, I think if you can crack that, which I think can be cracked, it'll be a a huge boon for workers everywhere. Well, thank you very much. The first task is to persuade people that good work is possible. Uh, Emphasise meaning, says Richard. Uh, Universal basic income, paying for things that haven't been valued before, says Joanna. And giving proper entitlements and support to self-employed people from you, Rowan. I will tell you now that the phrase that I'm going to use is that all work should be fair and decent with scope for fulfilment and development. I've told you that now because I didn't want you to destroy it during the programme, but I'm sure you're all too polite to have done that. So, Richard, Joanna, Rowan, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. You've been listening to RSA Radio. To make sure you get future episodes, subscribe to RSA Radio wherever you get your podcasts from.